Matthew 19. Well, for years now, my kids have been involved in these Lego sets, and I'm sure you're familiar with them. You might have grandkids or your own kids are there. They're pretty cool. I mean, you buy these sets, you've got a picture of what this looks like, and you have all these little pieces there. And, there are, and they come with like these plants, okay? And the idea is that you follow these plans and you can put together this magnificent creative piece that's on that box there, okay? And it's pretty fascinating, lots of little intricate pieces. Some of the pieces are standalone. And I mean, like my kids have like this medieval village, okay? And they build these little castles and forts and stuff. It's pretty cool. And then uh, you just need to know this, but right now there's a huge surge of Star Wars stuff that's out there. And so you can build like the Millennium Falcon. And just for those of you who are interested, Toys R Us, 10% off all Star Wars stuff. And on some selected models... 30%. 30%. How do I know that? I, I was there this week, okay? We had a little birthday in the family. And so it's really cool. You, you can buy these sets, build the Empire State Building, a little replica. If you're looking for a destination to go for a vacation, if you're like 50 plus, there's a place called Legoland up there in Grapevine. And uh, you can go run around in there. They got a, they have a miniature of the city of Dallas there, okay? Completely all built up. You've got these individual pieces. you got all these pieces are stacked together. It's pretty cool if you follow the plan. On the other hand, though, if you get those sets and you decide, you know, I'm going to go freestyle and you start putting together kind of however you want, you might get some interesting conglomerate of Legos mashed together, but it won't look like anything like the plan. Now, I'm telling you this because there's some real parallels between Lego sets and the blueprints that come with it and God's design, divine design for marriages and for singles. You see, if we follow God's blueprint, we actually heed what he has to say about the power of the spirit. We actually put it into play. We will see constructed before our lives, in our marriages, in our church, in our community. We will see this amazing, creative, fascinating design be put on display. It involves lots of people being connected, but it also involves special individual singles, and, and they all come together for one marvelous whole. But on the other hand, if we reject God, we actually are saying, you know, I think I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to freestyle my life. You know, when we reject God, we willfully reject him. It is not surprising that naturally we're going to defy him and reject his word. And so what happens is that people that go, you know, I think I'm going to do life my way. My culture tells me to do this. This is what's popular in today's media. When we go freestyle, what happens is we put together a conglomerate of stuff. Some of it's interesting. Some of it's like, what in the world is that? But is a far cry from the blueprint that God has given us. Now, we got a serious issue going on. Our culture has walked away from God and his divine design for marriages and for singles. And not only the culture, but churches all around America. The passage we're going to look at today in Matthew 19 rarely will even get, in, get any press time, any ever be spoken from a pulpit today in America. It goes against the grain that severely. And yet we all have these questions. What really is God's divine design for marriage? What's his blueprint? Why divorce? We ask, what is the significance of being single? And Jesus takes these questions head on. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't like, that's too difficult. You aren't going to like what I have to say, so I'll just not answer that question. He takes it head on. And we all wrestle with these answers. You need to know that some of the questions I just put in front of you, 
Some of these questions keep some of us awake at night. For some, this, this is the most serious issue in their life. And we all know that the degree that we follow God's blueprint, the degree that our own marriages and even our church reflect the glory that he intended. So what do couples and singles really need to know to experience God's divine design? Well, you know, the first thing you're going to need to know is the sanctity of marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus had just finished these words about forgiveness. We spent two weeks of them from Matthew 18, where he talks about what forgiveness looks like. Seventy times seven. You forgive like I forgive. I want your character and your life to look like me. When he finished these words, he departed from Galilee and he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And Jesus is now making his final trek to Jerusalem. His eyes and his focus is, are locked onto the cross. This is his final trip. And instead of cutting through Samaria, he's actually going on the other side, the east side of the Jordan River, into a ju- uh, jurisdiction called Perea. And so he's over there. He's, he's in this, re- this region. And verse 2, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Wherever Jesus is going at this point, people are coming to him, flocking to him, and he's healing them to authenticate that indeed he is the promised Messiah. He shows his great compassion for people. And there's some other folks that are pretty interested in Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. Verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? So here we have the Pharisees. They once again, they show up and they're in this region, Perea as well, and they've got a question for Jesus. They, they raise a question that is being hotly debated in their country. And that is the question of divorce. Now, most of the people... In Israel, they actually subscribe to what we would call no-fault divorce, meaning you could divorce your wife for any reason. There was, that was the predominant camp. In fact, there were two predominant views in Israel. You had these two leading rabbis in the first century, both of which had passed away shortly before the time of Jesus, and they had two differing views on the issue of divorce and could you remarry. And it's, it really all kind of gets based on Deuteronomy chapter 24, And specifically in verse one. Now, that is actually one of the main passages in the Old Testament on on divorce. And it simply says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And then he goes on to explain a particular case where this woman is divorced. She goes and marries another person. This either person either divorces her or dies. And, and then Moses says, you cannot then, that first husband, go ahead and then marry her again. Because why? I don't want my land defiled by your sin. And so Moses is being used by God to try to curtail their rampant divorces they got going on. The key is to, the, to their whole controversy is what did he mean by this indecency, some indecency in her? So you have this one cap. This was the most popular one, the Rabbi Hillel. And he said you pretty much could divorce your wife for any reason. He took that some indecency, and man, it was broad and wide. So, for instance, you could, if a woman let her hair down in public, you don't like that, she's gone. Now, by the way, men divorced. Women didn't divorce their husbands. So that's what. So if a, a woman then was caught talking to other men, you didn't like that, you could divorce her. Uh, if she even burned the bread or put too much salt on the food. That was, according to Rabbi Hillel, that was grounds for divorce. Another one, now this was pretty serious, and I had to take a pretty serious look at this. Um, If you spoke ill of your mother-in-law, 
That was grounds to be worse. Now, that, I want you to know that is very serious. Okay, and you guys are laughing, but it's serious. You, I, I want to warn you, don't do that, right? Creates all sorts of family problems. But Rabbi Hillel said you could divorce your wife over that. If she was infertile, and when one of these rabbis in this camp, Rabbi Akaba, he actually said that if you found another woman fairer than your wife, you just go ahead. You could divorce her. And that was actually the predominant view. Most people like that view. And you know what? That view's been around for a long time because guess what? It's still here today. That is the American view on divorce right now. Where did that come from? Well, thank you, Rabbi Hillel. All right? It's still got carryover value today. But there was another one, Rabbi Shammai. Now, he had a very limited following on his view. And he basically said the only reason that you could ever divorce your wife is if she committed adultery, and that's it. Well, that didn't sit too well with a lot of folks, and a lot of, a lot of folks subscribe to him. So what happens, though, is that the Pharisees, they're going to ask Jesus, all right, we want you to land on this issue. And they already knew where he stood. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus already had said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, he had already said this, everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whew. How do you think that sat in that culture? Whoa. Like, it didn't. How does it sit in today's culture? Whoa. That's in the Bible? Yeah. Who said it? Jesus. They already knew where he landed on this issue. You see, what they're trying to do is they want Jesus to suddenly become very unpopular, and so you're going to pick it up on this issue of divorce and remarriage. But they were there's more than meets the eye that what's going on here. These Pharisees, they're sharp and they are strategic. They are planning with this particular question to get Jesus killed. Let me tell you what's going on here. You know where they're at? They're in Perea. Do you remember who's ruling the Tetrarch ruling Perea? Herod Antipas. Do you remember him from Matthew chapter 14? You see, there was a guy by the name of John the Baptist, and he was afraid of no one. And he told Herod Antipas, you know, when you went over and you visited your brother Philip and you stole his wife and you got her to divorce him so she could marry you, that's sin. That is not lawful. And I'm sure he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is about to is about to come upon you. Well, Herod Antipas didn't like that too much. After all, he's ruler. You don't tell a ruler something he didn't like. And so he had John the Baptist locked up. And then you remember after that lewd little dance with that little stepdaughter? Well, Herod Antipas' wife, Herodias, she hated John the Baptist even more. And she got his head cut off at a dinner party that Herod Antipas was throwing. It is in this area, Perea, this is where Jesus is now. If they can get Jesus to say anything like what he said before, all they have to do is, hey, Herod, Remember, John, well, John's friend Jesus is here, and he's got pretty much the same view. Why don't you take care of him? Well, these guys are like wild dogs on the verge of attack. They're just waiting for Jesus to open up his mouth. And Jesus does. Look at verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus says, hey, you want to talk about divorce? Let's talk about marriage. I'm not going back to rabbinic tradition. I'm not even going back to the law of Moses. I'm going back to creation itself, Genesis 1 and 2. And he goes on to start spelling out what 
does marriage look like as God intended? He says, look at verse four. Didn't you read your Bibles? How is it that you're even asking such a question? Who made them from the beginning male and female? God did. God made them male and female. This actually has to do with God and his image. Man is created in the image of God. He's the one who made them male and female. And he says, verse five, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. God created man and woman and they are created in his image. And it's for this reason that they are to be united with one another. Marriage isn't for just Jews, just Christians. Marriage is an institution given to the human race. It was created by God and it was created so that man and woman might enjoy pleasure, that the race might continue and that there is going to be this ongoing experience of displaying the image of God through a loving relationship. Well, he's going on to explain the two shall become one flesh. Do you see that? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What is the greatest, most significant relationship that is in existence within the human race? Many people think it's the relationship between a child and their parent. Actually, that's not correct. It's between a husband and a wife. The two shall become one. One physically, one emotionally, one where they're going in the same direction. There is a unity that takes place in marriage, and this is by God's divine design. And he says, verse 6, just to kind of drive home the point, they are no longer two, but one flesh. There is a mystical unity that takes place, and he says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You could kind of think about it this way. In a creative sense, all marriages are made in heaven because God is the one who brought them together. And in so doing, he creates a life, a new life, a life together where the two shall become one. And if you destroy a two lives that are brought together as one, you are destroying a creative act of God himself. You see, your marriage, for those of you who are married, it's not about you. What? It's all about me and my happiness and what I want. And, and she's got to meet my needs and he's not doing this. No, you know what? It's actually all about God. He designed marriage for himself to glorify himself. And he's designed it so that we would come together. And it's a creative act because who joined them together? Verse six. Who did it? Anybody reading? God did it. God joined together. He says, let no man separate. God joined them together. That is why, like when you read in Malachi chapter 2, verse, six, verse 16, God says, I hate divorce. What? God doesn't hate divorce people. He actually loves divorced people, but he hates divorce for all that it does psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. The pain, the problems, I created them, I brought them together. It doesn't matter whether you were highly reverent and loved God and it was your whole wedding was just an act of worship or it was just something real casual. It doesn't matter whether it was prearranged by your parents or you mutually came together. God says, I'm in it. I did it. Whether you're a believer or not, God created you. I made you in my image and what God has joined together, let no man 
come between. You know, you and I, we desperately crave intimacy. Now, when I talk about intimacy, you're thinking like, well, when I read verse 5, it just sounds like he's talking about couples coming together, sex, one-on-one. It's, and we kind of, we even, when you hear the word intimacy, most people like go, oh, that's what our culture says. It's just all about the merging of human bodies. Actually, not so much. Certainly, sex is an aspect of, of intimacy. But intimacy goes way beyond that. When God is speaking, the two shall become one. He's not merely talking about things that are legal and physical. He's talking about that which is loving and is intimate. You see, God has designed marriages for that, so that people can truly know intimacy. Now, when I say that word, I just saw some of you guys going, oh, that word makes me nervous. I don't even like that word. Never use it. And what, is, what does intimacy mean? Let me give you a real simple way to remember that. I'll give you four words. Intimacy. In, to, me, see. In, to, me, see. That's what intimacy is. It's when people, two people, can actually get to know one another's hearts. There is a culture of acceptance, of appreciation, of value. You get to know one another. What's going on? Your hearts, your dreams. What is inside? There is a sense of acceptance, wholeness, a coming together. It's far more than something physical. It's soul on soul. It's heart to heart. And we all crave this, and God wants this to be expressed specifically in marriage. Most marriages are cold war zones. We're kind of tolerating one another and we kind of have working patterns so we can get the kids where they need to be. God wants oneness, wholeness, what God has joined together. And you're like, well, how do you develop intimacy? Intimacy develops, first of all, by developing intimacy with God. You see, when we come to understand God, his tremendous unconditional love for us, when we actually realize he knows everything about us, our fears, failures, our sins, our dreams, our hopes, our expectations. And we come to him, he meets us in our needs and he shapes our desires. And we learn that we can pour out our heart before him and you, dis- you develop intimacy with God, the Almighty, and it gives you the ability to start expressing intimacy with others. When you see a happy marriage, you need to know this. There's been a lot of time, work, forgiveness, There has been unconditional love, honesty, grace. And this is what God has intended marriage to be. It is a creative act by God himself where the two shall become one. Now, I have my little wedding ring here. When I got married, Karina, on the inside, she had inscribed the very verses that we just read. So that I'll not forget what God has joined together. Let no man come between you know marriages uh, there's some good marriages that have some parallels to like the the washington cascade forests up there in the northern part of washington there are these forests they have these trees that are like hundreds and hundreds of years old in fact one tree is like over 700 years old so the national forest service put a little plaque right by there and they've got these these trees that are just huge and they're very old and Usually a tree in a forest only lasts about 50 or 60 years, and that's because usually lightning strikes, and what happens when lightning strikes, it starts a fire, and so they get burned. That's why it's better to log them than to just have them burn, but whatever. That's what usually happens. Lightning strikes, forests burn. But not in the Cascades. In these northern Cascades, what happens is lightning strikes, but the trees don't burn. 
That's because they're always being drenched by water. Rain is always coming down. So you remember yesterday? Okay, not quite as bad as yesterday, but it kind of looks like that. These forests always receive precipitation. And good marriages are like trees in the northern Cascades. They are continually receiving the rain of God's grace and they're dwelling in intimacy with God. Let me tell you, good Christian marriages are going to have lightning strikes. Every marriage faces it. You're going to have face sexual temptation. You're going to have communication problems. You're going to have frustrations. You're going to have unrealized expectations. Lightning is going to strike. It's going to happen. Don't think that, hey, I'm just seeking God. I'll be protected. Jesus says you're going to have trials. Lightning is going to strike. The difference is when your soul is saturated with God himself, there is a love for Christ. You're abiding in him. You've made your home in Christ. You have the ability like rain to that forest to withstand those strikes and lightning hits. There might be some sizzling, but there's no fire going up because it is well with your soul. And let me just tell you, at Fellowship, we are radically committed to healthy marriages. Like every Sunday morning at 915, we've got a class called Fighting for Your Marriage. Why are we doing that? Because we are fighting for your marriage. We know that lightning is going to strike. We want you to experience what Jesus is talking about here. You see, God's divine design for relationships, if we're going to understand it and live it, we have to know the sanctity of marriage. This is God's idea. It's for him. Let me tell you something else. We need to realize the seriousness of divorce. Now, Jesus goes on to his little discourse here, but these Pharisees aren't going to be thrown off that easily. In fact, it's like they're oblivious to what he just had to say, because in verse 7, they said to him, hey, wait a second, Jesus, wait, wait, wait. Listen, you're going to answer our question. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Hey, listen, Moses commanded us to do this. And that is, by the way, how they actually perceived it. If there was the indecency, it was almost like you had an obligation to go ahead and divorce your wife. He says, you answer our question, Jesus. Why did he command us to do this? Well, Jesus said to him, listen. First of all, it wasn't a command. This was kind of like case law. He was describing a particular event. Actually, Moses was trying to curtail all their rampant divorces. And he said, you want to know the heart behind this? Verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. This is a hard heart issue. This all this rampant divorce that's taking place. And this is what it looked like in Arab cultures. All you had to do is publicly just say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times. You do it publicly and you were divorced. In Israel, they had the practice you had to give a certificate. That certificate did two things. First of all, it actually stated the reason why the person was being divorced, why the woman is being divorced. So you didn't just have flippant reasons. But second of all, it protected this woman so she wouldn't be thought of like some sort of runaway adulteress or some sort of prostitute. And he says, what's taking place here in Deuteronomy 24 is actually meant to curtail hardness of heart issues for you. And he said, well, you know, Moses permitted you, verse 8. He didn't command you. You see that? He permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. This was never God's design. That was actually written to curtail your rampant divorces of all your wives. But that's not God's divine design. And he says in verse 9, he said this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, porneia, 
and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, this word pernea, uh, we get our word pornography from it. It has, it's kind of a, a broad word that covers any aspect of immorality, certainly illicit sex, adulterous relationship. But it also, would, uh, if there was incest, uh, homosexuality, uh, prostitution, uh, molestation, uh, exposure, this was all covered by this word pernea. If this occurs, Jesus says, this is the one grounds that you have to potentially biblically divorce your wife. But that's it. And so he says, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, it's called the exception clause. If that if immorality has occurred, you could potentially divorce your wife and remarry. But that is the only exception. Now, if you were the guilty party, let's say you're the one that committed adultery. okay, and you led to divorce. You you don't qualify for the remarriage, but the violated party does, because what would happen when they're talking about indecency? It wasn't adultery because in Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20:10, what happens if you committed adultery? They killed you with stones. Painful. So he's what they're talking about here is there is something that is taking place that led to this divorce. By the time of Jesus day, they were generally not able to stone people to death. In fact, the Romans were preventing them because Romans said, we will take care of any executions. Thank you very much. And so what has taken place is that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to give grace. I'm going to give grace to the violating party. I'm going to give them an opportunity to repent. But for the one that's been violated, they do have a biblical grounds where they could be divorced and remarry. No stigma. Now, Jesus slayed some pretty heavy stuff. This goes against the culture. It goes against our culture. And he says, you can have the one potential of remarrying in the case of a adulterous relationship taking place. Now, this raises some pretty serious questions here. It's dead silent here. Why? Because, whoa, what happens if you divorced your wife or you divorced your husband and you didn't have biblical grounds? And what happens if you got remarried? Am I, am I in some sort of continual state of adultery? What, what do we, what, what's taking place here? And I, I feel like we need to talk about that for just a few minutes. First of all, uh, you shouldn't consider it as a continual state of adultery. If you broke that marital vow and you did it with unbiblical grounds, that is a serious offense. You got married, Bible would say that is adultery. What do we do? Well, we realize we got to cling to Christ with everything we have because we absolutely need forgiveness. Jesus has spelled it out with utter clarity. There's not a lot of ambiguity here. Now, should we think that this second marriage is just continual adultery? No, because that would be kind of just the initial of how it got started. If you are married, what you want to do is you want to, and you've been remarried and it's not under uh, biblical circumstances that he's outlined here, you want to make the most of the opportunity that God has given you. You want to stay married. You don't leave your spouse to go back to that first spouse because two wrongs doesn't make a right. What you want to do is you want to grow in the relationship that you find yourself presently. If you got sin on your account, you confess it. We have a Savior, and you cling to Christ. And let me tell you, I have seen Romans 8.28 in this situation. You know where it says that God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes? I have seen it with my own eyes. Situations where people have come together under the worst of circumstances, 
God has blessed and God has worked out wonders, grace, ministry, love, redemption. Now, you might wonder, like, well, are my, are my kids somehow, like, illegitimate? No. They're created by God for him and for you to lead them to him. Now, this is pretty serious stuff. There's also, though, one other exception that's given in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Jesus isn't meant to be exhaustive. He's addressing the questions that's being asked to him. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, he outlines one other, through the Apostle Paul, reason potentially you could divorce your spouse, and that would be if they have abandoned you. They have literally abandoned their role. They have left you physically, emotionally. Perhaps they're abusive toward you. They have left you high and dry. They want nothing to do with you. There is, it says, like it says in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. That is actually a language that was used legally for someone to be freed and emancipated from a marriage. Let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so it's an allowance, but it is never a mandate. And let me tell you, God, God desperately wants there to be Oneness and wholeness brought even out of destruction. And I can tell you from being a pastor for quite a few years now, I've seen firsthand that God can bring redemption, forgiveness, wholeness, even through wreckage. It seems to be how he works. When you've got a man or a woman that's been wronged and they say, you know what, I am going to cling to God. They surround themselves with godly people. They have people praying I have seen the, even the, the couple, the guy that actually or the gal that has done that, which is wrong, violated their marriage and their spouse, actually experience repentance, forgiveness, redemption. And God has gone on to give them not only a good marriage, but a great one. Can he do that? That is how God works. And the ticket to that is what we just studied for the last two weeks. Matthew 18, forgiveness. When we come to a point where we truly release this to God and we release our love to them. Well, let me just tell you one other aspect about divine design. If we're going to live it out, God's blueprint, you've got to know the sanctity of marriage. You've got to know the seriousness of divorce. Is it serious? Absolutely. There's one other thing you need to know. The significance of being single. Whew. Well, the Pharisees walk off. Jesus is once again just kind of laid them open. They're embarrassed. Their tails between their legs. They leave. The disciples, in a time of private discourse, verse 10, say, Jesus, help us out on this one. Look what they said. They said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Jesus, we understood you clear, clear and plainly. And if it's like that, it's better not to marry. Man, we don't want to be in an unhappy marriage. Obviously, we can't divorce our wife for all these reasons here. It's better not to marry. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, there is great significance in being single. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement that it's better not to marry. In fact, most will not be able to, but only those to whom it has been given. He says, the people that can remain single, it's actually a gift. God has given them the ability to do that. And what he's done is he's given them a gift to completely devote themselves to God, to Christ, to his work. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he actually says you can have undistracted devotion to God. 
He says it is a gift that God has given. And so he goes on to explain this. Verse 12, he says, there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. Now, a eunuch is just a male that's been emasculated, okay? And he says, some are born that way. There are some with some sort of physical defect or they have no desire for women in the case of a male. And he says, some are born that way. And he says, and there were eunuchs, verse 12, who were made eunuchs by men. And this was something that disciples, everybody was familiar with this. There were some that were actually emasculated by others. Generally, what would happen is if you were going to be a servant in like a royal court and the king had his royal harem or a bunch of female servants, they actually did this. Okay, gruesome is painful and just problematic. That's what they did because they didn't want those servants messing with those women. Okay, they were familiar with this. They were not familiar with the next thing that Jesus said. There was this third category of someone who is completely set apart to God. And he says, and there are also eunuchs who are made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not talking physically. He's talking metaphorically. There are some who have set themselves apart to God and his kingdom work. They are experiencing, like he talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, complete, undistracted devotion to God. And it's an immense privilege. It's not a curse. It's a gift. It's a gift that God has given. And frankly, as a church, we have singles in our church that are vibrantly living for Christ. We need to support them, encourage them, be alongside them, help them, because they're fulfilling God's call. They are like unique, special pieces to the kingdom of God. However they ended up that way, or perhaps they've been single all their life, they're called, we're called to support them and encourage them. They have immense opportunity. But let me just tell you, to the degree that we have left this, this whole blueprint is the degree that we have missed the mark. Let's just talk for a minute. Marriages. God has created marriages for oneness, wholeness, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There's called for intimacy where they truly know one another. And yes, we have some marriages that look like that, but we probably have a lot of marriages that don't. That look like more like Cold War zones. When we talk about divorce. Jesus spells it out. We have some folks that have been divorced with biblical justification. And we probably have some folks that don't have some good biblical reasons to be divorced. And then we have singles, and we have some singles that are living for Christ and doing, making, taking full advantage of the opportunity they have. And then we probably have others that they resent this. And this is like a huge wedge between them and God. And the degree that we are not following the blueprint is the degree that we are missing the mark. You see, there is not one of us that's not guilty of some aspect of what Jesus is saying here. And what do we do? We don't rationalize it. We don't like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight God on this. I'm going to cut this part out of my Bible. No, we never rationalize sin. We confess it. We cling to Christ and we experience his forgiveness no matter what your situation. And that's what we do. You see, what God is going to do is he's going to take us no matter what we have done with our lives. And he pulls us in sin and all. And he works us into this masterpiece of his grace. And we are overwhelmed by the tremendous, awesome love and power of God to work good out of evil. You see, God specializes in addressing sin issues. That is why he sent his son, Jesus, to this earth. Remember in John 8, there was this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Early in the morning, Jesus is teaching at the temple. I mean, this just smells like a setup. 
And they caught this woman in the very act of adultery. They haul her in front of Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, you know, it says in the law, we're supposed to kill her, stone her. Jesus is drawing something in the sand. And then he just, he said, all right, you who are without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he goes back to drawing in the sand. Maybe start to list the sins that they've committed. And then finally, starting with the oldest, they are walking away. And then when everybody's left, Jesus is face to face with this woman. Can't you imagine? And he says, did no one condemn you? No one, my Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go. Sin no more. I'm forgiving you. I'm going to pay the penalty for your sin, but I want you to experience life a new way. You don't have to live like this. Now go and walk the newness of life. Friends, what we need to do is believe and take God at his word and exercise faith. Let me give you some verses. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything. Your, our adultery. Sin, our divorcing our spouses. How many times that has happened? He'll forgive you if we agree and come to him. Let me give you another verse. Hebrews 8.12. For I'll be merciful to their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more. In the new covenant, God never sees us in our sin. He sees us united with Christ. We're in the Son. Never in our sin. Always in the Son. He wants you to believe that and to know it. Or let me give you another one, Hebrews 10.22. This might be an extremely special verse for a lot of us. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Pure, clean, because of the blood of the Lamb. You are whole and you are new because of your relationship with Christ. You've been united with him. That is the gospel. And that is the reality of those who are trusting in Christ alone. And so what we do, like he talks about in verses 13 and through 15, we just come like children. God, help me. You know me and all my weaknesses. I simply cling to you. You see, what happens is God works us then into his masterpiece. He takes that which is unholy and makes us holy. He takes that which is worldly and he makes them worshipful. He takes the self-centered and makes them Christ-centered. He takes those who are rebellious and he turns them into those who are redeemed and regenerate. Why? Because he works us into his masterpiece as an act of his grace, no matter what we've done. God is not glorified by our self-centeredness or our sin. You know what he's glorified by? When sinners cling to Christ. And this passage, does it not drive us to Jesus? There was a scene where Jesus went and visited a particular Pharisee by the name of Simon. He shows up at his house. Pharisee man, he's not going to show Jesus any of the customs, didn't anoint his head with oil, didn't have any servants wash his feet, didn't kiss him on the cheek, which was the standard handshake at the time. They're having their dinner. And out in this courtyard, then this woman who was a known sinner in their city, she comes and she literally starts weeping and falling and kissing Jesus' feet and her tears are running off her face and on his feet and she's wiping with the tears in her hair. She's wiping Jesus' feet. Man, it must have total seen. Everybody's like totally silent looking at this woman. Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking so he tells them a little parable about forgiveness and then he goes and he looks right at this woman and he says, Simon, hey, do you see her as he's talking to this woman? I want you to know I see her 
I see her hurt. I see her pain. I see her sin, but I see her love. I see her need for acceptance. Do you see her? I see her. You see, I came in here. You never gave me a kiss on my cheek. From the time she shows up, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't wash my feet. She's washing it with her tears and her hair. You didn't anoint my head with oil. You know what? This woman, she came in. She's anointed my feet with perfume. And let me tell you what's going on, Simon. He said this. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. That's how it works. Have you been forgiven much? The people that have been forgiven much, they love Jesus much. When you don't really realize your sin, you think you've been forgiven little, you love little. It's as simple as that. And isn't it amazing? The greatest sinners among us, starting with me, we become the greatest worshipers because of the tremendous love and grace of Jesus. Man, the people are going, who is this man who forgives even sins? It's Jesus. He's going to pay for it all. He's going to die in our place. And then he said to this woman, your faith, your faith in me has saved you. Now go in peace. And that's how we go. We leave our sin at the cross and we cling to Christ. And through Christ alone, we can make it together. Christ cleanses us from our sins by uniting us with himself. And what he does is he he places us in the masterpiece of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the amazing power of this passage. Some of us, Lord, we are grieved by the sin that we've created and what we've experienced. We, we simply turn from it. We just trust in Jesus. We believe he's paid the penalty for our sin. We know that we are forgiven and we walk in the newness of life. We go and we sin no more. And Father, I pray that we who've been forgiven much, we might love much. And we do so in Jesus' name.